Well, I didn't know if anyone was going to come tonight or if you're all going to be at the picnic outside because it's 70 degrees on a Sunday, finally. But it's good to see you here. I'm glad you still get to enjoy some sunlight inside. So it's so good to see so many of you here uh, tonight as we continue in our series called The Seven Woes. Now, if you were here last week, I had to start by apologizing to you. Because last week, if you hear, we did 12 verses and we actually got zero woes in those 12 verses. So thank you for those of you who, who hung with me and you came back tonight. And as a reward for coming back tonight, you get a two for one deal. How about that? A two woes in one night kind of night. That's what we're doing tonight. A two for one. As a reminder that the seven woes are these statements that Jesus makes to the Pharisees. And we talked about this last week, but it's worth reminding ourselves again that the Pharisees, back then it wouldn't have been a, a, uh, a disparaging remark to be called a Pharisee. It would have been a compliment. They were the most informed about scripture. They were the most strident in their wanting to be obedient to God's word. And they, they did all these things. They had passion and enthusiasm, yet through that, they had blind spots that led them astray from where God's heart actually was. We're going to look tonight at one of these blind spots and see how we can tend towards this as well if we aren't careful ourselves. Well, I think it's in human nature to love being in an exclusive club. Right To love being an exclusive club. I remember as a child, we would build a fort out in the yard and we'd paste a sign on the side that said, no girls allowed. <laughs> it was exclusive to the boys. Girls, find your own club. This is just for the boys. How many emails a week do you get? I know I try and unsubscribe, but I still can't unsubscribe from all of them. Exclusive deal. It's just for you. It's an exclusive thing. See, we love an exclusive club as long as we're the ones who get to decide who's in and who's out, right? We love being exclusive as long as it's us who's on the inside. But if, if you've ever been on the outside of one of those, you know, that doesn't quite feel as nice. Some of the exclusivity that I think of, I, I thought of this, um, this TV commercial, which we can go ahead and play. Unfortunately, the audio broke on it. But this TV commercial, have you ever felt like this on an airplane with a kid behind you, smacking your seat? He just stares at you. He's not going to stop kicking your seat. And yet you look up and you see the glories that are first class. <laughs> and you think to yourself, oh my, look at how great that is. And the hostess comes to you. Oh, she's going to invite me. In. Nope. Curtain is shut right on his face, and it's go sit down in your seat, sir. Excuse me, right? Have you ever noticed that on the airplane, like even first class has their own bathroom? I'm like, what is the first class bathroom like? Because the coach one ain't very nice. That's all I know. Like, do they actually have space that they can move around in there? Like, I, I don't know. Right? And th there's that, that statement at the end of that commercial there, which I thought was funny. First class is there to remind you you're not in first class. But unfortunately, when we think of Christianity and when the world looks at Christians in the church, sometimes the attitude that we can have is Christians are there to remind everyone else that they're not as good as us, that we're better. We've got our lives under control and we're actually the exclusive club and they are on the outside looking in. 
See, when we talk tonight, the sermon title tonight is The Danger of Exclusivity. And I want to make sure I clarify at the beginning, perhaps you came hoping for some heresy tonight. I'm going to do my best to avoid that, I promise. Um, when I say the danger of exclusivity, I'm not saying exclusive exclusivity as to means to salvation. I believe, as this church believes, that Jesus is the exclusive, the one and only way to God. I'm not saying that that is dangerous. That's not that kind of exclusivity. But what I am talking about, the danger of exclusivity, is we can tend to be exclusive in who we think belongs in the family of God. Who we think belongs here. And we can set up an exclusive club mentality almost. The church, rather than being what God has designed it for, can be an exclusive environment. And rather than being open doors, how God would have us can actually be an inclusive thing, which then excludes and pushes people away. See, this was true of the Pharisees. So we're going to look tonight at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, just a couple verses for us tonight, and I have a few other texts. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles, um, as well as the other texts that we'll be looking at. I'll have some on the screens, as well as some on the insert that you received when you arrived tonight. In Matthew chapter 23, the first woe in verse 13, Jesus says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go to enter in. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They have literally done this literally by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Right? Jesus came as the Messiah, as the way to God, and they shut that door in his face and in the faces of others. But literally what the Pharisees were doing by pushing Jesus away and then encouraging everyone else around them also to reject Jesus, where they were pushing away the people who actually wanted to come to God. The Pharisees were shutting the doors of heaven on those who wanted to come to God. And Jesus calls them out on this. They shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. See, the Bible has a lot to say throughout, especially the Gospels that we look, as we look at the stories of Jesus and his ministry here on earth. They have a lot to say about people wanting to come to Jesus and the kind of people that Jesus associates with and what happens to people who push those away who want to come to Jesus. So for one example of this, there could be many here, but look at Luke 18, which is printed in your handout. In Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. It says this, now they were bringing even infants to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They're like, get these little kids away from Jesus. They don't belong. They're not worth his time. He's too smart. He's too valuable for infants. Get them away. This is an exclusive club. Get those people away from him. Verse 16. But Jesus called to him, called them to him, the infant, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Again, in Matthew 18, when speaking of children being received by Jesus, he says this, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, little ones there, he's most likely not just referring to little children, but to those who would be younger in their faith, trying to seek after Jesus. Whoever would reject them who are coming after Jesus. He says this, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The millstone would have been a heavy stone that was attached to a rope and pulled around by a donkey used to help excavate in farming. This is an agricultural thing. And he said, it's better for someone who, someone who wants to come to Jesus, but is prevented. That person who prevents people from coming to Jesus, it's better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the ocean. See, everything Jesus did in his ministry, almost all the time, what you see, Jesus came and he brought the kingdom of God. He made it more accessible for people. He was always widening the reach of it, expanding, welcoming anyone who wanted to come to Jesus. Yet sometimes as followers of Jesus, like the Pharisees were back then, weakened instead of being open-armed and welcoming anyone to us, to Jesus, we instead set up exclusive things and push people away. I think we do this for good intention purposes, but they come across the wrong way. And so tonight I want us to think of three ways that we exclude people in the church today. Three ways that we exclude people. And my hope is that we would do as this church and wherever church you come, if you're visiting, the opposite of this. These aren't goals to work towards. These are goals to work away from. This first way we we drive people away from Jesus, the first point tonight is that we expect morality before conversion. We sometimes expect morality before before conversion. We sometimes, for some reason, we demand that people live like Christians when they aren't Christians. Oh, you want to be, you want to come to church here on Sunday? Well, that's fine. Get your life together first and then welcome. Come on in. Now we don't say this, right? We don't publicly say this, but we say it with how we look at people with how we'll move away from people, with how we interact with others, right? We, we don't even do this self-consciously sometimes because we see here people who we've known and we come and say hi to them. Meanwhile, someone else who had the courage to come to church for the first time and who knows how long gets ex- excluded and no one says a word to them, right? Because it's an exclusive thing. We don't even mean to do it sometimes. And when we think of what we sometimes subtly expect this morality before conversion, it's interesting how the sins often kind of um, shift over time with whatever cultural hot button issues are in our world, right? So whatever the hot cultural buttons are, like that's the sin that this person needs to have fixed before they come to church. I don't know about you, but I've never heard someone who seemed to push people away because uh, this person came and struggled with anger or pride or selfishness, right? It's other sins. It's sexual sins. It's sins of other natures that are sometimes more prominent, that we can sometimes demand that they look like us, they act like us before they believe in what we believe. See, it's been said before, you may have heard it, that the church is not to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. The church is not to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And when we expect people to act and to believe and to do the exact right things before they ever believe in Jesus, it's not, it's becoming just where it's inclusive and everyone who already knows how to act can come. That's not what the church was to be about. In Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, which is the 
also there in your handout, Mark chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It says this, And as he, being Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for, they were, for there were many who followed him. These people are grouped into two categories, tax collectors, meaning not only did they scam people, but they were within the insurgent Roman government to do it, and people just known as sinners. Now, I don't know what you had to do in your life to fall under that classification for sure, but it wasn't good things, right? It wasn't good things. And they're reclining with Jesus. This, this idea of sharing a meal together has this idea of fellowship, of welcome, of camaraderie. You don't share a meal with someone unless you're open to them sharing into your life and having a relationship with them. And verse 16 says, The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. See, if our church is to reflect the heart of Jesus, I hope there's lots of people here, here tonight, who don't exactly act like how Jesus would want us to fully act yet. Because the church isn't this place where you come when you have yourself all made up righteous and then you can come to Jesus, but you come as you are. You come with your baggage, your wounds, your history, your past, your family, everything about you. You come to Jesus like that. And I want you to know if you're here newer and you had the courage to come tonight, that we're glad you're here and I don't care what you struggle with today or tomorrow or last week or next week. We are glad you're here and this is a place where we want you to be here. See, it's, it's crazy that sometimes we do this, but we expect for non-Christians to live like Christians before they come to church. We expect non-Christians to live like Christians before they come to church. We would never do this in almost any other area of life, but we subtly expect this when it comes to church behaviors. We would never expect someone to act a certain way before they were something. When I was in college, which was about oh, a while ago now, 12, 13 years ago, I worked uh, at a Starbucks here in Chicago. I worked at the Starbucks here at the Merchandise Mart, actually, which I loved. It was a great job besides the 4 a.m. wake-up calls about four days a week, which was early, but you got a lot of coffee, right? You got a lot of coffee going. Now, when, one of the things that was, um, that was interesting when I worked at Starbucks that we had to learn was how you call drinks. Now, today, if you work at Starbucks, or if you go to Starbucks, which I haven't since yesterday, um, when you order a drink, they do this, like, they, they paste out this sticker, and they, like, put it on a cup, all right? But back in the day, when I worked at Starbucks, this was before we had stickers, and so the general Starbucks cup looks something like this, and you maybe think, oh, those boxes are there for decorations, no, but those boxes are actually there because employees, which they were called partners, I think they still are, had to be trained to say a drink a certain way, right? Because probably most of us have gone in and we've ordered something and then we've kind of changed it and we've, we've made our order like 30 seconds long, right? Like I want this, but can you make it like this? But then what about this? And then they repeat it back in like one and a half seconds and it's so crystal clear organized. Now here's the thing. When I worked at Starbucks, when I started... They didn't go in and say, um, do you know how to, to call this? That's what meant. Do you know how to call this properly? Right? I would be like, no. And they'd be like, well, you're you don't get the job. You're fired. Well, no. 
They wouldn't expect me to know how to do it until I was actually an employee, right? They wouldn't expect me to have the behaviors down until I was hired as part of the job. And we actually had dice that we would practice with. So when you get drink orders, which you can go to the next one, you can drink orders. See, to some of you, that just looks like gibberish on a cup. But to me, I know that's a decaf, ice, grande, vanilla, non-fat, light ice latte. That's very simple. I could make it. I haven't worked there in over a decade. That's easy. That's e- what, what's so complicated about this? Like, I know exactly what it is. Or the next one, which is, see, this one's a nice one. This is a grande, five-punt chai, non-fat, extra hot, with no water chai latte. <laughs> the chai's good without water, too. It's, you get a little extra flavoring, right? Or this one, which, by the way, I, this cup drives me insane because it's actually marked incorrectly. The 195 needs to be down lower, all right? So this one's actually a, gran, a, excuse me, a quad grande, six-pump, sugar-free vanilla, non-fat, easy dribble, 195-degree Fahrenheit, upside-down caramel macchiato, all right? You all knew that just by looking at it, right? Now, how do I know? Well, it's because I worked there for a year and a half. Right? I work there, and after, after you become a Starbucks employee, you learn the behaviors that are expected of you. And this seems like gibberish, but there's literally thousands of people all over the country, probably here in Chicago, who could do the exact same thing. Now, just as my boss wouldn't have expected me to know that until I became an employee, we shouldn't expect people to live and to look like Jesus when they don't believe in Jesus. They are welcome to our church always. It's not that we let Christians who proclaim to follow Jesus live openly in sin. That's not what I'm saying. But the church is a place that no matter where you come from, that you are welcome. It doesn't matter if you look like a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you have your life together or you don't. There is a space here. This is a safe place that people can struggle and work out what they are thinking and feeling and believing. There's a statement that's become quite popular throughout um, the church world. It's that often people need to belong before they believe. People need to belong before they believe. And if we demand morality before people actually believe in Jesus, we're not letting them belong and become a part of who we are, but we're simply saying, this is how you have to live. And if you choose to live this way, then you're invited back next Sunday. No, that's not what church was about. The second way that we can fall into having an exclusive mindset is that we can emphasize knowledge over maturity. We can sometimes emphasize biblical knowledge over maturity. Now, I am not against biblical knowledge. I have a very big library in my office. I love reading. I love reading theology. I love reading the Bible. It's good to grow in knowledge. But sometimes as a church, or as Christians even, we can think of emphasizing knowledge, what we know about God, over maturity in our walk with God. See, sometimes following God in our minds is almost like getting a college degree. Like you go to certain classes and you see what's offered by the church. You're like, all right, if I go to a class, if I go to a small group, and I go to, for here we call them communities or Sunday school, if I go to those things, um, then I mature. Okay, good. I can check those things off my box. Give me like my certificate, spiritual maturity. I've arrived. Thank you very much. Now, knowledge is a part of maturity, and a class may help you get to spiritual maturity, but discipleship can never be reduced to just a class. Spiritual maturity is not something you show up to at one o'clock on Sundays for an hour and you leave having attained it. 
So what is spiritual maturity? If it's not just knowledge, but it's more, I think sometimes we neglect to really understand what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual maturity. We're going to look at five different things that I think characterize a spiritually mature person. This list is not meant to be complete or exhaustive, but it's five things that, that as I was reflecting this week came to my mind. The first characteristic of spiritual maturity would simply be godly living. Godly living, not just knowledge, but how we live our day-to-day, everyday lives. This would kind of be the broadest category of the ones we'll look at. This is clearly seen throughout scripture, Galatians um, chapter 5, talking about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit being the outcomes or the, the things that are true in your life if you have the Holy Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And showing here that godly living isn't just an understanding of knowledge. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2 says this, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. So you could have all the biblical knowledge in the world apart from godly living, and it means nothing for you. It means nothing. That's why there are great biblical scholars who are still alive, who work in our world today, who aren't followers of Jesus Christ. They're simply extremely smart men or women who have dedicated their life to studying the Bible, and they know a lot, but they don't commit their lives to following after it. And so look at the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit of this godly living in your life. As these things are becoming more and more true, you're on the path to maturity. That's the road to maturity. The second characteristic that I thought of this week when it comes to spiritual maturity is consistency. Consistency. Consistency, and when I was thinking of this, I was thinking of a broad number of different ways. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, says this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ, what what implicates this maturity? So that we may no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and schemes, excuse me, tossed by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, have you ever met someone who kind of lived their life like they had roller coaster Christianity? Right, roller coaster Christianity, meaning one day they were like, man, this is the greatest thing ever. And the next day they like weren't sure God existed. And then the next day they like were going to serve in ministry for the rest of life. And then the next day they didn't want to talk to anyone ever because they hated people. Right, like so, sometimes like they're just like the Bible says that's, that's not a spiritually mature person. Have you ever met someone who's like, I, I read the Bible for, for 15 straight hours today and then I neglected to read it for two months. Like, that's not a spiritually mature person who practices their discipline one day and then doesn't carry on any spiritual disciplines for weeks or months at a time. See, there's consistency that characterizes a mature person, someone who is seeking after maturity and following after God. It doesn't mean that there aren't emotional ups and downs of life. I'm not trying to say that it doesn't mean your circumstances will test or try your faith and you may feel that way. 
but we don't just throw it out and start over, but now we're back. Now we've thrown it all. We don't go up and down, but we're consistent in our following after God. The third um, characteristic of spiritual maturity would be unity, unity with each other. Ephesians chapter four, again, earlier in the, the first three verses of chapter four of Ephesians say this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As you read through the New Testament, it's amazing how so many of the characteristics that define someone who's growing in maturity to God are, are dealing with what's called the one another's of scripture. The one another's. There's dozens of these, the bearing with one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, all of these one another's. And they represent the unity that we are to maintain in the body of Christ. See, a mature person can find someone they disagree with about something and they still maintain unity. See, a spiritually immature person finds one small thing that the two of us disagree on, and now there's disunity. It's a, it, 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 everyone needs to meet. We need to solve this issue. This is a church split. We, but, but a mature person finds unity, even amongst perhaps some disagreements of certain things. The fourth characteristic of spiritual maturity is confession. Is confession. 1 John chapter 1 talks about confession. It says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In James chapter 5, he encourages the people he writes to, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, I think confession is such an important part of spiritual maturity because if we don't confess our own sin, our time tends to go staring at the sins of other people. If we're not staring into our own hearts and confessing our own sin, we're naturally drawn to see everyone else's sin except for the sin in our own hearts and our own lives. In that passage in John, the confession of sin isn't just how we start a relationship with God, but it's an expectation of maintaining a relationship with God. Now, unfortunately, in this Catholic city that when we think of confession, we think if we have to go to a booth to someone who's standing in there, but that's not the biblical term of confession. That's not what it means you have to go do that. It's saying the same thing about something. That's what confessing means. So you're agreeing with God that your sin is what God says it is, that it disrupts your relationship with him. Not only that, but you're confessing your sin, not only to God, but to each other. It keeps you humble. It keeps you accountable. It keeps you growing and mature. We will never be perfect, but that's what we strive towards. And confessing our own sin rather than looking at the sin of others helps us become mature. It's been said that D.L. Moody, obviously the founder of this church, has said this before. He said, I had more trouble with myself and my sin than any other man I've ever met. That's a mature person because he sees his own sin and says, this is the problem. It's my sin. I have a lot more problem with my sin than with other people's sin in their lives. The third character, or sorry, the fifth of, of spiritual maturity is intentionality. Intentionality in following after 
God. D.A. Carson, a professor that I had up at Trinity, has said, people don't drift towards holiness. Right? If, you're not, if you're not set towards spiritual maturity in your life, you don't wake up one day and say, hey, wow, check it out. I've become spiritually mature. We don't drift there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this, For this very reason, get this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 10, he again says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. So when you look at this list, again, it's not exhaustive, but I think biblically these are accurate things that we should be thinking of if we're to be moving towards spiritual maturity in our lives. If, if spiritual maturity is just knowledge, then we all just need to quit this, go to school, get more degrees, read more books, and that's how we become mature. But it's not. The Bible has maturity is so much more than just knowledge. And so where on this list is your life kind of falling behind? Where is it falling behind? Are your disciplines, is this last one, have you been not quite making every effort? It's, it's been a long winter. It's hard. The school year is coming to an end. Things are busy. Maybe this idea of confession is something you haven't been practicing a lot in your life. Maybe there just hasn't been the consistency to your life that needs to be. Where do you need to focus today on growing in spiritual maturity? See, I think we practice exclusion when we emphasize knowledge over maturity. When I think of some of the most spiritually mature people in my life, I could go to them and ask them about some of the most famous theologians in the world, maybe living or dead. And the likelihood, what they would say is, I don't know who that person is. Right? Like, how can you be spiritually mature and not have read every book by Karl Barth? That's impossible. He's the most influential theologian of the 20th century. But why? Because it's more than just knowledge that leads to maturity. It's godly living. It's consistency. It's maintaining unity. It's confession. It's intentionality. And so when we emphasize that it's simply all this knowledge that is brought up, that that's what gets us to God, it's actually wrong. But it's maturity in our walk with God, not just knowledge. The second will that we're going to look at today is in verse 15. In verse 15, but if you are good at math, you will know that we naturally do not go from 13 to 15, that we have skipped a number. Skip 14, all right? So I just want to address this because this pops up periodically in Scripture. You might think, ha, they found something that was so offensive they had to hide it in the Bible. What are they hiding in there? Well, I will tell you. If your Bible's like mine, it actually tells you right down here at the bottom, all right? It tells you. So verse 14 is the exact same thing, almost word for word, that's found in both Mark 12 as well as in Luke 20. And it's another strong statement of Jesus towards the Pharisees. This was included in the Bible early on in English translations. As more manuscript evidence has become available to us, every ancient manuscript that's of the older and more trusted manuscripts does not have verse 14 in Matthew. That's why it's not there. It does still have it in Mark and Luke. So you didn't find like some secret passage in the Bible that shouldn't be there. All right. So just so you all know why it goes from 13, why we skip 14 and go to verse 15. 
So the second woe for tonight, verse 15, Jesus says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That the Pharisees would go out and make proselytes. Now, right around this time, perhaps during this time, um, it was well known that the, that the Pharisees would actually go out and do kind of what we would call now missions. They would go out and share what they believed with other people. Jesus is not condemning sharing your faith. Don't even try and pull that one, right? No, Jesus says, don't share my faith, so I'm not going to do that. I don't want Jesus to woe at me. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees would go out to make proselytes. That's a non-Jewish converter to Judaism. We don't use that word a lot, but that's what it means. Someone who would convert to Judaism who's not from an ethnic Jewish background. But he says, after they became a proselyte, you would make the person twice as much a child of hell as yourself. If that sounds strong, that's because it is. That you would make them twice a child of hell. Now, what, what scholars believe, what Jesus is accusing them of saying is the Pharisees weren't actually converting them to Judaism. They were converting people to Phariseeism. They're converting to their, to their specific ideas about what it meant to follow Jesus. And because they weren't converting them to followers of God, but to their specific sect of Phariseeism, they were actually making them worse off than they were before. Jesus isn't against sharing our faith or proselytizing, but he's against what the Pharisees were trying to convert people to. And we too could fall into this danger in the third, the third way we can exclude people today just like the Pharisees did back then, is if we insist on specifics rather than basics. If we insist on specifics rather than basics. See, we, we do this in several different areas in the church world today. We insist on certain specific things, and you'll see this across a wide spectrum of things. The first, the first specific that we often focus on in the world is church methodology, church methodology. We think that, that certain things have to be a certain way. Now, the most common one, I would say, I mean, there's no right or wrong answer. What I would argue, perhaps the most common one that you hear on this is music. The church has to sing hymns because that's what Jesus sang. Wait, no, it wasn't, but that's okay. It, it would have been what Jesus sang if he was alive. If they had the hymns, right? It, it, that's only what we can sing. Right? Like, we can't have that instrument in church. That's not, that's not the kind of music we need to have. Right? We have our preferences, and that's what the church needs to do. Or they need to have, um, the, the other thing that, that we can do is we can think of, like, programming at church. I will never go to a church that doesn't have adult Sunday school because Jesus had adult Sunday school after church. You know, like we, we demand that certain churches must have certain programs. They must have a men's Bible study on this night, a women's Bible study on this night. They must do this, they must do that. And they always have to have a Sunday night service. Amen, a Sunday. Those churches that don't have a Sunday night service in Chicago, they must not love. No, they love Jesus. They love Jesus. Right? But we can think how dare that I would never go to. I would insist that they have this as well. Another way that we do this in certain churches and certain traditions is we, uh, we do this with Bible translations, right? We do this with Bible translations. I will only go to a church if they use this kind of Bible, 
which they, of course, they're insisting on the original Hebrew and Greek, to which I'm saying, that's fine. Learn the original Hebrew and Greek. It's hard, but do it. No, of course, they're insisting on something else, an English translation that they think this is the only one that we can use. They insist on their specifics rather than focusing on the basics of what the church is, the people of God, worshiping together, taking communion and baptizing others. The basics of what the church is, but they're focusing on the specifics as well. The second thing I think when we think of specifics that we wrongly focus so much on are non-essential theology. Our non-essential theology. There are, don't get me wrong, please, there are basic essential theological things that I think we have to have agreement on with other people if they truly are Christians. Right? The Bible's clear. If someone comes to you and says they're a Christian, they don't believe Jesus is God, I don't care what that person says, they're not a Christian. At least not a Christian according to what the Bible would say. Right? We believe in the Trinity. We believe the Bible is the word of God. These are essentials to our faith. We believe Jesus is the only way to God. But there are a lot of specific theological arguments and things that Christians get into and we battle and focus so much on it that it actually excludes people from coming to church. The long debate over Calvinism and Arminianism, right? It was predestined to happen. No, I chose to be here tonight. Like, which is it? You only get that joke if you know a little theology. I apologize. I apologize, right? Another one that that we argue a lot about over non-essential theology is the use of spiritual gifts in the church. Some things that that some gifts have ceased, other things that they're normative, others are in between. But we sometimes focus on specifics so much that that church is wrong, we could never associate with someone like that over non-essential theological things. Another would be baptism. That good churches disagree on when when people are baptized, infants, believers later in life. I know... uh, one of our pastors here, as we were talking with him about baptism, um, he, he said he once was talking to someone as, about baptism. He goes, people used to die for this. And the pastor said, yeah, but should they have? You know, is that actually worth dying over someone because you disagree on the mode or the method of baptism? You know, non-essential theolo- theology that we often elevate and we start to go at each other, eschatology. We just go at each other, the end times, when Jesus is coming back, what exactly that will look like, because any of us have been there and we know that, no, right? We're all just trusting that God is, we're doing our best with scripture, but we can have such disagreement focusing on specifics that this is what you have to believe that we neglect actually the basics. Another way that we do this is through life application of God's word to our lives. Through life application of God's word to our lives. See, the Bible gives us principles and commands for each and every one of us if you're a follower of Jesus, but it gives us the freedom on how to apply these to our lives. And this will look different depending on who you are and where you are and in what stage of life it is. But so often we think that the way I'm going to apply God's word to my life has to be the way you do it or you're doing it wrong. And we insist on our application of the spiritual truth as how you need to apply it or you have done it wrong. How does this look? A few different examples. So for instance, the Bible commands every believer to be pure, to be pure. Now, one of the ways that I apply that to my life for a certain time when I was in college is when I was in college, I decided for about a span of probably two years that if I was in my dorm room and I was alone, I always propped the door open. 
right? It's called glass door living. I heard it pastor say, it's, you don't have a lot of temptations when dozens of people could walk by your door at any single moment, right? Like if you have teenagers and your mom can walk by anytime and you're a teenager, you're like, I'm not doing anything. Mom could walk by, right? Like that's the ultimate accountability. Now, did I go around to my next door neighbor and accuse him that he didn't care about purity because he didn't have his, no, because that's just a conviction that God led me to for that season of my life. Um, one of the things that I treat is the Bible says to be self-controlled, to not let yourself be controlled by anything. I find that all too often in my life, this thing controls too much of my time. And so at home, for me, I never take this upstairs where I sleep in the bedroom. It always stays downstairs. Now, if I were to ask you and you take your phone into your bedroom, would I be like, oh, you aren't taking self-control serious? No, right? Because that's just the conviction that God's given me and a tool that I find helpful. It's not something that you have to do. But what happens is sometimes we start to insist on specifics. This is how Christians have to do it if they really care about it. And when we insist on specifics rather than the basics, it actually starts to lead to excluding people rather than including people. See, Christians need to rediscover the art of gracious disagreement. Christians need to rediscover this art of gracious disagreement with each other. Rather than so focusing on specifics and driving wedges and dividing, pushing people apart, this gracious disagreement that we should have. And in our world today, I think this can be such a testimony to the power and the work of Jesus Christ that it will naturally bring people in. Because our world certainly does not do this. Our world does not practice gracious disagreement. And when we reflect our world and we focus on specifics and drive people apart, we're excluding people. We're sometimes excluding maybe even the people that Jesus would want to bring in. There's a statement that was said by a theologian many years ago, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In all things, charity. See, it's possible to live life, to, to, to live life, to love someone, to, to be a, a Christian, to be with those around and not agree on every specific thing that you believe on. Um, several years ago, as you know, if you were here in the country, we had a heated election. And I remember following the election, I was talking with, uh, with one of my youth leaders at the time who was a college student. And I remember he made the comments to me. Um, he was a single man, so he had lots of wisdom about dating and relationships. Um, and he made the comment to me that he could never date or marry someone who disagreed with him politically. And he doesn't know how people could ever do that. And he was passionate. He didn't like passion. He was very passionate and he was smart. And then he looked at me, he goes, what do you think about that? And I said, well, last week I held my wife's hand. We walked and voted. And my wife and I have never voted for the same person. And we voted and then we walked back home and we held hands and we went about our day. And he was like, wait, what? What just happened, right? Because it, there's an art that Christians can disagree over non-essential things, right? And so the Pharisees were elevating their specific beliefs that they were excluding others. Let this church not be a place where you have to vote for a certain people, hold certain specific views on how the Bible applies to your life or how this passage should be interpreted. But let this be a place where everyone is welcome. Jesus was all about making the church more accessible, more people come into the kingdom of God. May that be true of our hearts and of our lives as well. God, we do thank you for Jesus and for his work and for the fact that he has included us who believe 
in Jesus as the son of God and that he paid for our sin, that you've included us into your family. God, may we reflect the heart of Jesus and that's to, to share and spread the love of Jesus as far and as wide with as many people as possible. May our lives not be one where we're excluding people, but we're including people into what you could do in their hearts and in their lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.